God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who gives in an unapproachable light, who, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves in a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And more or less following on from those sentiments, we're reading from Matthew chapter 25, uh, commencing at verse 14. It's a parable of the talents that I'm sure you all know very well. Commencing at verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money there. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained you two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been a fa you have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would receive it back with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have a, an in abundance. Whoever does not have, 
even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, my name is Jimmy. For those who don't know me, it's so good to have you here. Uh, today, we embark on a new series. We're looking at a series called Living is Giving. And so, is the opportunity for us, we as Christians have been given so much in our life from God. We've been given the hope of salvation, the hope that's found in Jesus. We looked at last, in our last series in Colossians just how vast and how glorious this gift of Christ is to us. We have received God in Christ. We've received the forgiveness of sins. We've received being transferred from being one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. And so we have incredible, incredible uh, joy in knowing the gift of Jesus. And we've also been given so much more than that. We've been given uh, our time, our gifts, our money, our strength, our passions, our skills. And if we believe God is the creator of all things and our God is good, then all these things come from God. And so this series is all about working out what, what are we to do with the gifts that God has given us? What are we able to do with these things? Because it's obvious that if God is a giver himself, the way God works is he gives of himself, he gives life, he gives hope, then we have to follow in that pattern as well. And then when we give ourselves to this pattern of, of living, then we give as we live, we will find an abundance of life itself. So let's pray as we begin this little first part in our, in our series. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you you care for us. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you want us to know you more. And we pray that as we seek to understand this text, understand what it means by gifts here, that you would help us to see the incredible gift of your Son and desire for that to to overflow in our life to the lives of others as well. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. What is a gift? What is a gift and why do we give it? Gifts or presents are things we give to people because they're people we love or care about. They're people we want to we appreciate in our life. And so we give gifts to them, our, our children, our grandchildren, to show our love and appreciation for them. We give gifts to uh, newlyweds or engaged couples uh, because we want to encourage them and, 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 and set them up well on their journey towards being married. Uh, we give gifts to colleagues and co-workers to say farewells, to show how much we appreciate them and their time with us in our jobs. We view gifts that, that, that are something that's freely given without uh, being under compulsion and without the expectation of return. We might expect maybe gratitude, a thank you. If you go to a wedding, you might expect a nice meal at the wedding, but otherwise, we at the very least only expect gratitude, and we never expect the same amount of return. So we give a gift knowing that we're not going to get the same in return necessarily. Um, that's our modern stance on, on gift giving. For it to be a gift, it must be given without a desire to see a significant or equal return, without reciprocity as such. However, the ancient world uh, viewed gift-giving much differently. Giving a gift came with the expectation of reciprocity, of return. Uh, they were given for more than just simply celebrating your friendship or showing your appreciation. Giving gifts created social ties. It, it actually bound you to someone. It was saying that you were committed to someone and you expected them to return the favor as such. They had no problem with the whole idea of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. They mixed both disinterest and self-interest in ways that our modern world 
would confound us. And so in our modern world, we have a a greater uh, uh, job security and greater independence opportunity to provide for our own needs that we don't understand this idea of gift giving. But in the ancient world, they relied on each other so much more. And in a world where there is no legal obligation to, to look after each other, there's no welfare state as such, gift giving was essential. It said to the other person that, I am committed to your welfare. I am committed to you, and I want you to be committed back to me. And so if the other person wasn't going to return the favor as such, wasn't going to give back to them as they've been given to, then both parties would suffer in the end as well. Now, in, our, in the biblical world, gift-giving like this kind of way is held up. God has given us the gift of his grace and his mercy and given us new life in his son and being included in his kingdom. But the reciprocity, the return is much different. We don't in turn sustain God's life as such, but nor do we just simply say thanks and then move on with our life. The gift that God gives us does require a return. He does expect us to, to reciprocate the gift he's given us. In, giving, in being given the gift of his kingdom, new life in his kingdom, he expects us to live out that life in the kingdom. He expects us to return that gift. To do this, God gives us many things, our time, our money, our skills, our passions, our drives, all to be used in light of receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, in light of receiving the gift of grace and belonging to his kingdom. And this morning, we're going to investigate how we treat or use the gifts that God has given us as we belong to the kingdom. And that's what this parable here, the story, is all about. And I have two points from this story this morning. The first is the gifts of the kingdom given, and the second is the gifts of the kingdom tested. So firstly, the gifts of the kingdom given. The most important word in our passage this morning is the word again. Pretty much that word again, it links what proceeds with what comes. And so in verse 1 in, uh, of 25, we learn the story of the ten virgins is all about the kingdom of God. And so thus this story of the master and his three slaves, continues to answer this question of what the kingdom of God is like. And so in verse 14 we read, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So central to understanding this story is knowing what the wealth is supposed to represent that he's entrusted to his servants. Now we know it's got something to do with the kingdom of God, but before we can get to that and understand what the wealth, the talents, the bags of gold is, we need to understand the nature of the giver, the master himself. What we learn is that the giver is both good to his servants and he knows his servants well. You see, the master is willing to impart his wealth, and we read, entrust his wealth into the hands of his slaves. Now, I was once entrusted with a house sitting for my Bible study leader. Now, I, probably sh- I was 19 at the time, and I probably shouldn't have been entrusted with such a task for, for four weeks to, to house sit for him. Uh, I couldn't cook. I'd never lived out of home my entire life, and so I was entrusted with taking care of his entire home. And because uh, I had no idea how to cook, the pizza boxes would stack up, the two-minute noodles would stack up as well. So that also showed my attitude towards my general maintenance and cleanness. The lawn would grow to like two feet tall as such. And it wasn't until he was starting to come back, the day before he came back, I realized, oh no, I've got to actually clean all this up as such. And my friends, this is out in Weatherill Park, my friends dubbed the house that I was living in the Weatherill Park 
waste management facility. It was that bad. Apparently, apparently it was that bad. I don't think it was that bad. Anyway, I was never asked to house sit for him again. I wonder why, as such. Now, since then, just so you know, I've changed my ways. I'm, I'm way more clean. I clean all the time. In fact, I, I consider it a hobby now. And, and, and it, and it drives Katie insane. I love cleaning every Saturday morning. Let's clean. She's like, no, let's do something else, please. So asking someone to house sit while you're away is a big thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a big thing to entrust someone. And, and it's people like me who ruin it for everyone else, who can't be deemed trustworthy. So what's incredible here is that the master leaves his entire estate, his portfolio, his wealth, with who? His slaves. Not his sons, not friends, his slaves. It seems to suggest that the master has a really great relationship with his slaves, that he really trusts them a lot here to leave them with such. And that might seem like a massive responsibility, right? To be entrusted with a whole entire estate, a portfolio as such. But because the master has a good relationship with his slaves, he knows their capability as well. And look at verse 15. So the one he gave five bags of gold, another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Now we all know what it's like to be thrown in the deep end without being prepared for something. I remember when I got my first full-time job at Optus, I was 19 years old, and on my second shift, I had to close the store entirely. I had to do all the reconciliation, the receipts, count the till, clean the, the whole store up and stuff. And I had no idea. I was making it up. I had no idea about the systems that were being used. I kind of left the store thinking, I hope nothing crashes in the morning as such. I was thrown in the deep end that was beyond my ability. And instead of swimming, I sank pretty quickly. But this master is a good boss. He's good to his servants, at least. And he gives according to their responsibility, according to their ability. And we see that he is proved right in the end. We read in verse 16, The man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. His trust pays off on them. His trust in them pays off. They, they double what they've been given. But the third slave does something else. Instead of putting the gift to work, he, di he digs a hole and, and buries the gift. And so in verse 18, but the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. His response to receiving this gift or this talent or this, this gold was obviously not the response we expect or the response the master wanted. But why he does this, we don't know just yet. We'll find out in the moment. But at this point, we need to ask ourselves, why, why is Jesus telling this parable? This is a really strange story. It's a random story to be telling right now. We know it's got something to do with the kingdom of God. We know it's got something to do with what I'm going to call the gifts of the kingdom. And that these gifts are given to those in the kingdom. But the question is, what are these gifts? Are they money, time, talents? I think it's something else. Whenever we read parables, it's important to note that the Pharisees are never far away from Jesus' mind. The Jewish people were the ones who were given the gifts of the kingdom of God, the law, the covenant, the promises. And the Pharisees were the ones who were entrusted with these promises. They were the ones who were like the gatekeepers as such, the ones that God had appointed and given these laws to lead the people of God. And so Jesus tells this parable with them in mind, and I'll get to why in our second point, because the question is, is which servant is the Pharisee here? You see, for us, the gift of God's kingdom is not so much our time and, and 
gifts, like talking about our skills or our money. The gifts of God's kingdom is the good news of Jesus. The gifts of God's kingdom is the grace and love of God that we know from God's word. The gifts of God's kingdom is Christ himself given to us, the hope of glory that we saw back in Colossians. And the thing is, we've been entrusted with that gift. As God's people, as God's church, we've been entrusted with this gift. And the question is, what will we do with it? Because the gifts are given, and there will come a time when the gifts will be tested. So it comes to our second point. Second, the gifts of the kingdom tested. Here we move to the second stage of the narrative. and If you look at verse 19, it says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. He's back, and he's ready to see what is coming his way. Exactly. And the question looming in our minds is, what's going to happen with the third slave? We know that the, he's going to be pretty happy with the first two slaves, right? They've got their gift, they've got their, their gold, and they put it to work. And we know that he's going to be pretty happy with them. He says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Have more responsibility. Uh, come and share in my joy. It's the response we expect. So the question we do have is, what will he do with the third slave? Because he didn't lose the gift. He simply just dug it in the ground and, and left it there and did nothing with it. So what will his response be? The account is from verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked servant and lazy. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Who does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this climactic stage of narrative, we learn the slave's reasoning, the master's response, and the slave's outcome. Firstly, the slave's reasoning is really bad, terrible. He was afraid of his master, he said, accusing him of being a hard man, which, interestingly, he doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that at all, which we'll get to in a second. But his view of his master is determined by, determines the way he views the gift itself. He knows it's his responsibility to see this money return like the other two, but he sees his master as a hard person who, doesn't have, who has no desire for him to grow, no desire or trust in him at all. He sees the gift as a burden, not as an opportunity like the master sees it as. And so the master's response is outrage. Of course he's outraged. And here's the thing, it's not because the master didn't receive a return on the gift, although he was really hoping so, but rather because he entrusted something to his slave, his portfolio, his wealth. He entrusted it to him knowing that he could make a return on it, and instead, he does nothing with it. Now, the slave has brought up an issue here. He, he, the slave points out the master's uh, unethical behavior of sowing and other people's, sorry, gathering for other people's fields and taking their profit for himself. And the master's like, well, yes, I do that. I'm a bad master, I guess. But at the same time, I'm good to you. I actually gave you something that most slaves don't get. And here you are, telling me I'm a hard man, you're my slave. So he's outraged at this point. 
angry that his slave would dare talk back to him and question him. Because the reality is, is that the slave, in burying the, the, the money, he reje- not only is he rejecting the gift, he's rejecting the master as well. And so the slave's outcome is condemnation. There's no way this slave is fit to be a part of the master's group of slaves. His gift is taken from him and given to the first slave. And whilst the other two are invited to share in the master's joy, the third slave is tossed out of the master's presence forever, where there is darkness. Instead, he endures the master's judgment. If this parable is about the kingdom of God and those who apply the gifts of the kingdom can expect to enjoy the benefits of sharing in the king's joy, Jesus' joy. But those who reject the gifts of the kingdom, burying them as a as burying them and wasting them, also reject its king. Now there is one group of people back then who this story fits perfectly. It was the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the religious elite, those entrusted with the gifts of the law and covenant, the gifts of God's grace. But how do they go about using and applying these gifts in their day-to-day lives? Well, Matthew 21, they allowed the temple to become a temple place, sorry, become a marketplace where people got ripped off. Jesus calls it a den of robbers, a place of worship and prayer. The Pharisees allowed that to become a place of oppression where people were robbed of their livelihood. In Matthew 23, Jesus launches a verbal attack on the religious leaders and how they have buried the blessings of the law and covenant within their tradition, making it so hard to follow Jesus and to follow God, making it so inaccessible to the people around them, making all these laws so they had to, and saying you have to obey all these laws to belong as God's people. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of the impending judgments coming on them and on Jerusalem. And all that they experience, and here in Matthew 25, we have two parables about how to prepare in light of that coming judgment, in light of the coming of the king, the coming of Jesus' kingdom. This parable is told as an indictment on the Pharisees who rejected the gifts and in so doing rejected the king. The gifts that are given here represent the gifts that were given to the people of God, the law the promises that were entrusted to the Pharisees and the priests all the way back in Exodus 20, thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene at Mount Sinai. And since then, they have had so much opportunity to be a blessing, to put those gifts to work. In Genesis 12, we read that the people of God were to be a blessing to the surrounding nations. Well, they weren't. The Pharisees aren't that at all. And unlike the slave, the third slave here in, in Matthew 25, the God of the Pharisees is not a harsh God. The God of the Pharisees is not someone who is unethical in the way he deals with things. The God that we know, that the Pharisees know, is a God of grace and love. The God who gives second chances. The God who is wonderful and good to his people and to all people as well. There's no excuse here at all. The third slave might have had some excuse, but the Pharisees have none. And so just as the master of the estate has returned, the king of the kingdom has come. He came in riding in on a donkey into, his, into Jerusalem where he will be crowned. He will be crowned on the cross. His death 
will serve as a judgment on those who took the gift of the kingdom and buried it deep, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees' time is up. Their indictment has been made. Their judgment is pending. doesn't look good for them. It's an indictment on them, but for us, it's not. For us, it's a warning. It's a, it's a tell us, be prepared. The king will return in glory to settle all things in heaven and on earth. And the way we have handled the gifts of his kingdom, the gift of grace and love, will, will show or determine whether we will be invited in to share the king's joy or be cast out into the darkness. In Matthew 5 verse 14, we are told that we are a light on a hill, a city that can't be hidden, that our light should shine out before others, that they may see God and all his goodness and praise him. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends the 72 disciples out to do mission, to preach the good news of Jesus, to give life and to heal people. And he says to them as they go, freely you have received, freely give. The good news of Jesus, when it impacts us, when we, when we receive that gift, that naturally can't settle there and be buried within. When we've understood it, it naturally overflows out of us as a life-giving gift to others. So let me ask you, do you, do we, as a church, seek to apply the gifts of the kingdom, the gift of grace, the gift of mercy, the gift of love to those around us, to each other, to ourselves? Or are they buried deep within us? So deep that no one can access it through our comforts, through our traditions, our securities, inaccessible to the community and to each other around us. Now to be sure and be very clear at this point, there is no suggestion here that our salvation is determined by how successful we apply the gifts of the kingdom. The work this gift does on us is that it transforms us, it makes us citizens of God and thus it changes us. And, that, and the natural overflow of that is to apply this gift in our life and in the life of others. And so we recognize that what we've received, the grace of God, His mercy and love for us, is not just for us, but it's for others as well, as we've been entrusted with this wonderful gift. Those who are like the third slave are those who have outright rejected the gift and therefore rejected God Himself. And therefore, they haven't understood the gift at all. They haven't understood grace. The point is not to see the first two slaves as the goal, as the ideal for us here. Jesus uses these two examples to simply highlight the failure of the third slave. They are simply narrative devices. We shouldn't read too far into their experience, although we can a little bit, but not too far into it, because the point of this parable is found in the third slave. The point is, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't you who have received the goodness and the love of God, the grace in, in Jesus Christ, don't bury it. Don't do nothing with it. Seek to apply that to your own life and apply it to the lives of others as well. Don't bury it within tradition or your comforts or your security. Seek to show how can I show this gift to other people in my life. How can I let this gift even apply to myself and change my life as well? I think one of the best ways to examine ourselves, to see how we're going, whether or not we're those who are 
digging a hole for this gift or allowing this grace to overflow in our life is to actually reflect on how we use the other gifts that God has given us. How we spend our time and our money. How we use our possessions. How we use and apply our skills. All of these things, they show how we view the gift of grace that God has entrusted us in Jesus Christ. You see, we have been given so much. I mean, we've given the grace of God and His love for us. But we've also been given so much here on the Northern Beaches, a beautiful home, wealth beyond measure in some sense, community and friends, skills and passions. So, much have, so many of you are gifted people. And you see, we can either bury the gift of grace under all the other gifts that God has given us, or we can make it stand out to put it to work and allow it to overflow in our lives. You see, just a few examples, giving your money to God through the offertory here is not a waste like our world thinks it is, as some might think, but it reinforces to those around you that, that God is Lord of your life, that Jesus is Lord of your life, that having God is so much greater than having wealth. We live in the northern beaches in a hedonistic society where people simply want more and more and more and they worship the idol of money. When you put money into the plate or into, the, into your offertory or in your electronically, when you do that, you're saying to the world around you, there's something that is far greater than my money. There's someone who is far greater and far more worthy than having more and more money. And his name is Jesus. Giving your time and serving and coming to church shows how great you think Christ is. Because you're giving up sleeping in. You're giving up going to Sunday brunch. You're giving up spending time with friends and family at the beach, whatever it might be. You see, it reinforces to those around you that there is nothing better in all of creation. There's so many good things in creation. So many things we can enjoy on a Sunday morning. Everything from the beach, the sunrise, to good coffee in Manly. All these things are really good gifts. But when you gather here, and some of you are thinking, oh, what am I doing? I should be there. <laughs> but when you gather here, when you gather here right now in the presence of God, what you're saying to those around you is that there is something far better than the creation itself, the creator himself. I get to be in the presence of the one who made all these things, and that's why I give up my time to come to church. That's why I serve, because I want to see this happen and be put on every single week. You get the point I'm trying to make here. The way we can allow the gifts of grace to overflow in our life and the lives of others is to see all of the other gifts that God has given us as being for the purpose of showing why God is so wonderful and so sweet and so good. That's what the, the slaves do here. This series is living is giving is all about pushing ourselves to see the life is all about giving. That we are to follow in the paradigm of God himself, who gave us life, who breathed into us new life in Christ Jesus. We are to follow in his pattern of living, because we are made in his image. And so therefore, we are called to give as well. And when we give, we can experience life with him. Notice in the story, the first two slaves... The result was they were able to enter into the master's joy, to enjoy abundance and life with him in his presence. The third slave was left outside where there was weeping 
and gnashing where there was death. This series, I want to encourage you guys to know that the gift you've received in Jesus Christ, or the gift you can receive if you haven't in Jesus Christ, frees us to, to give to others as well. So let me encourage you. Since the Son has been given to us freely, let us also freely give. To see our time, our money, as a way of making the gift of Jesus look so good and so awesome in this world who desperately needs him. Amen.